0: It's one thing to affirm God's power. That's the easy part. One thing to affirm God's existence. The hard thing is when that God says something that conflicts with your worldview or your view of yourself. And that, that is where Nebuchadnezzar had problems. Have you ever had a bad dream? King Nebuchadnezzar once had a dream that was so terrifying that he demanded that his wise men interpret it for him or die. So what was the dream? We'll try and answer that in today's sermon from Daniel 2. You know, in the Old Testament, one of the coolest jobs that you could have was the job of the prophet. To be a prophet was to foretell and to foretell great and weighty matters. However, as great as it would be to be a prophet in the Old Testament economy, there was a significant downside that kept coming up again and again and again and again. See, everyone loved a prophet, at least until that prophet prophesied something that you didn't like. At those points, the prophet became the least popular guy in the whole nation. Imagine Elijah running for his life, curled up under a broom tree crying because of the nature of what he prophesied and the people's response. In any case, it happened a lot. God's prophets would prophesy things. More often than not, the people would not like what they heard, and so they'd go after the prophet and put a bullseye on the prophet himself. Now, before we continue, I want to mention one or two other things about prophets because it's relevant to everything we see in a text that deals with prophecy. First of all, we have to remember, in Scripture, there, there's really only two kinds of prophets. Can you guess what they are? There's real ones, and there's fake ones. You got the real legitimate article, and then you got all the the charlatans. You got all the fakes, and you got all the frauds. Now, let's say that you lived in Old Testament Israel. Let's say you were a king or an individual. How could you distinguish between the good and the bad? How could you distinguish between those who were of God, those who told truth, and those who didn't? Well, in today's text, King Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, is going to hear prophecy. And he's going to have a novel solution to the idea of how you could figure out who knows what they're talking about. In today's text, the pagan king is going to have just this troubling dream. He's going to wake up and sweat. He's terrified. He wonders what the future is going to bring. And instead of asking his advisors to tell him the interpretation, this shrewd operator of a king is going to say, not only do I want you to tell me the interpretation, I want you to tell me the dream itself. So in other words, oh, oh, sorcerers, oh, magicians, oh, wise men, oh, eggheads of Babylon, come on in. I want you to tell me two things. Tell me the interpretation of my dream. But first, before we get there, tell me the dream itself so I know you're real. If you can tell me what the dream is, I'll put stock in your interpretation. But here's the thing, oh, magicians and sorcerers of Babylon, if you can't tell me the dream, we're going to have a problem. And that problem is going to result in your death. He tells them that they're going to be torn limb from limb if they can't live up to the standard. Now, this is a guy who is known for throwing people into fiery furnaces. This is a guy who is known for throwing people into lion's dens. He's not joking around. When he tells all those that he brings before him that if you can't do this, you'll be torn limb from limb, he means it. He means that is the exact outcome that you will face. So how is this going to play out? for all the, the wizards of Babylon, but also for men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel, how's this going to play out? What's going to happen to all them? What's going to happen to Daniel and his three friends? Well, let's find out now. As we look at Daniel chapter 2, I'm going to first look at verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to work our way through the balance of the text. Verse 1. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians and astrologers and sorcerers and Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. They came and stood before the king. The king said to them, I have had a dream. My spirit is anxious to know the dream. You know, sometimes a dream is just a dream. You may dream of of giant robots in space. You may dream of, of hamburgers who eat whole cities. You can dream all sorts of weird and odd stuff. And sometimes a dream is just a dream. With that said, over the centuries, God has at intervals used dreams to impart information. At his discretion, God has sometimes used dreams and night visions and the like to impart information both to his people and sometimes to pagan kings, like we're seeing in today's text. If you think about other dreams in Scripture, you might think of Jacob. Remember, he's using a rock as a pillow he lays down, he has this dream of Jacob's ladder, the ladder that pointed forward to Christ. You might think of Joseph when he's called in to interpret the Pharaoh's dream, a passage that really has some point-to-point comparisons with today's text in Daniel 2. Whatever the case is, God has frequently used dreams to accomplish this end. So in verses 1 through 3, it appears that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that somehow differed from all the dreams he'd been dreaming up to this point in life. A dream that left him terrified, tortured, sweating. He's concerned. He wants to know the outcome of these things. And he's so anxious that he called essentially the the whole kingdom's wise men to come on in, to help him get to the bottom of it. He isn't called just the top guy or the second guy or what have you. He wants everything. He wants everyone to attempt to help him to get to the bottom of this dream. However, over the years, the king had probably had the sorcerers and magicians and all these guys interpret other things. And I think he began to realize that a lot of times they told him what he wanted to hear. Like like any folks in the lip service and the like, they told him what he wanted to hear. They probably helped them keep their heads and so forth. But he he was wicked, but he was no dummy. He knew that the, all the people he usually brought in would just usually affirm him and his greatness, And he knew that this dream had more significance in it. He needed an actual interpretation rather than just the glad handing of the sick fence around him. So he determines again, he's going to test these men. Let's look at verses 4 through 13. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants of the dream and we will give the interpretation. See how this is working? See what they're hoping to do? Verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made in ash. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream. See, they're trying to switch it around. The old switcheroo here, they say, No, 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 king, tell us the dream. Tell us the dream, and we will give its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know for certain that you try to gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and if you can do that, I will know that you can give me the interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king. by this time, they're sweating. By this time, they realize he's he's serious. And they know they're in between a rock and a hard place. The Chaldeans answered and said, there's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king or lord or ruler has ever asked such a thing of any magician or, or astrologer or Chaldean. It's a difficult thing that the king requests. And there's no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was angry. They told him something he didn't want to hear, and for this reason he was angry, very furious. And he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And so the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and then they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. All right. verses 4 through 13, the king tells his prophets, so to speak, to get prophesied. He tells those that he entrusts with all the the wisdom and knowledge and so forth to help him out. And they tell the king, "Uh uh-uh. They say, it's not possible. They say, no one can do what you're asked. No one can do what you're asked. They knew that they couldn't read the king's mind. No matter how terrifying the threats were, and they were terrifying. This guy was a monster. This guy was a tyrant. But no matter how he terrified them, they couldn't do what they couldn't do. So they told them there's not a man on earth that can do that. That can, can read your mind is, in essence, what they're telling the king. No one can read your mind and understand that. You know, as a, as a side note, You get interesting questions sometimes when you're a pastor. I've I've had the question a few times over the years. When it comes to spiritual warfare, folks have asked, can the devil read my mind? Can spiritual enemies understand what's going on inside? Well, if you've ever wondered that, if you've ever wondered if the devil demons anyone can ever read your mind, today's text suggests the answer is no. There's other texts that suggest it's no as well. But if the king's dream could be perceived by the devil and his minions, I'm sure it would have been shared with these false prophets in order to validate them. In order to validate and authenticate their pagan ways. But that's not what happened. Neither man nor demon alike had any idea what was going on inside the king's mind, what fever dreams God had brought before him. And because they didn't know, the prophets were about to die. Let's look at verses 14 through 23. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered. Arioch. So remember, they finally get to Daniel. They've just been killing wise men as they go. They finally get to Daniel. With counsel wisdom, he answers the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Ariok, why is the decree from the king so urgent? And then Ariok made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. So Daniel went to his house. Made this decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Remember, those are the Hebrew names for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secret that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the, of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed is the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God, and my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might, and have made known to me what I've asked of. For you have made known to us the king's demand." All right, verse 14, the captain of the king's guard, remember, they're just slaughtering prophets and wise men and astrologers and sorcerers to the right and to the left. They're piling up. They come to Daniel, and Daniel says, Hey, hold the phone here. And he wants to understand a little bit what's going on. Ariok explains it. And so Daniel goes into the king, which is a dangerous thing to do under any circumstance. He goes in, and in essence, asks for more time. But because Daniel was ten times wiser, And Nebuchadnezzar knew this. Ten times wiser than all the other men really combined in his kingdom. Apparently the king gives him time, at least a night here, to work this through. And as Daniel sleeps, God, God conveys the information to Daniel. Daniel didn't reach up and grab wisdom from God, grab knowledge. He didn't discern it. There were no divining sticks. There was nothing like this. He says, God, I have to know this. And God responds to that. God responds and he imparts to Daniel the information that he needs to know. Now, that brings us to the dream, which is a lengthy bit of exposition here, but it's crucial for us to understand. It is as crucial for us to understand as it was for Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look at verses 24 through 45. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said this, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. In essence, he's standing in the gap, even for these pagans. He says, take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation." Then Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, remember they changed the names when they came in, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation? Remember, the king is fixed on the same point. I want both from you, not one, not one, I want both. And Daniel answered and said, the secret which the king has demanded The wise men, astrologers, magicians, and soothsayers cannot declare. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter day. At this point, you can imagine the king's ears perking up. Because he knew that that was in line with what his dream had been about. Your dream and the visions in your head were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to mind while you were on your bed about what will come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed because I have more wisdom than anyone alive. But for our sakes, who made known the interpretation of the king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, verse 31, you, O king, were watching. And behold, a great image. And this great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. Think about a great, mighty statue. Its form was awesome. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze its legs of iron, its feet, partly of iron, but partly of clay. And you watch while a stone was cut out without hands. Which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together. And they became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck him became a great mount filled with the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, and the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven are gathered. He has given them into your hand made you a ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. You can imagine Nebuchadnezzar kind of you know, standing going, oh, I like the sound of that. So you are the head of gold. But, and this is where Nebuchadnezzar's jaw would have dropped. But, after you shall arise another kingdom. After you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And then another, a third kingdom of bronze, shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, this kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom will be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw, iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as as you saw, the stone was cut of the mountain without hands, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, clay, silver, and the gold, great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. All right, verses 24 through 45. Daniel does what the sorcerer said no one could do. He provides both the dream and the interpretation. And it's, it's a fascinating dream. It's a fascinating vision. This giant statue made up of different metals, of different qualities, some more inferior than the others. And these medals typified different nation, which would follow after Nebuchadnezzar, which would follow after Babylon. Now, let's stop there for a moment. Because depending on your hermeneutical bent, depending on the way you look at Scripture, you might be tempted immediately to dive in and try to figure out, okay, which kingdom is with? Well, who are these people? Who are these people and the like? And, and try to extract that. But with that said, what if you're King Nebuchadnezzar? Let, let, let's put ourselves in his shoes for just a moment. What if you're Nebuchadnezzar and you just heard what we've heard this morning? What do you do with that information? Let's say you're King Nebuchadnezzar and you hear of silver and bronze and gold and clay and toes and all these different things. What do you do with that? Do you sit there, King Nebuchadnezzar, and you, you go off into your study and, and, and break out your papyrus and your scroll and your parchment and your pen and all that and try to figure out which one's going to be Rome, which one's going to be Greece and the Medes and the Persians and like? Is that what you do? Of course not. But frankly, any talk of other nations other than yours... It's something that just offends you. It doesn't give you the inclination to try to determine which ones are which. Now, in our day, we take the opposite tack. In our day, we don't think about Nebuchadnezzar's response really at all. We, we put on our prophesying hat and put on our prophesying monocle and scrutinize the text and try to figure out exactly which, which of these four kingdoms are which based on our understanding of history. As tempting as that is to do, again, that's not Nebuchadnezzar's response. And since we're lingering on the text, we want to focus on how he's responding to Nebuchadnezzar, the one thing he would have got out of it, the salient point of this prophecy to Nebuchadnezzar, who dreamed the dream in the first place and was the original audience of this dream, the point he would have gotten was this that his kingdom was going down, that his reign would end, and that an inferior kingdom would ultimately conquer it, and then an inferior kingdoms on down the line. And then ultimately, they would all go down. They would all be destroyed by a rock. A rock cut without hands. Who's the rock? Right. We know how this works. (laughs) Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the rock. We're going to get to that here in a moment. But all these nations, all these kingdoms are all going to be destroyed. Every last one of them is going to be destroyed by a rock cut without hands. Irrespective for our point this morning, for our purpose this morning, for our limited time this morning, irrespective of whether the other nations represented the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, all of which has been discussed and all of which is debated, and there's all sorts of commentaries on these subjects, irrespective of whether the nations represented Medes and Persians and Greeks and Romans, the main point was that they were all going to end. No regardless how strong, how weak, which one followed which, they were all going down. It is the rock that's the key in it, not the statue. It is the rock that is essential to our understanding of this text, not the gold and the bronze and the silver and the line. It is the rock. The stone was cut. This rock was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold. Nebuchadnezzar heard that. Nebuchadnezzar heard that. Don't get me wrong, I do think an authentic and interesting case can be made for how world history has played out on the basis of this text. But the main point being conveyed to the original dreamer of this dream was that his kingdom and all the ones that would succeed it were destined to fall to be replaced by a heavenly kingdom, by an eternal Now, I do want to linger for a few moments again on Nebuchadnezzar as he takes all this in. Nebuchadnezzar, what's he thinking? You know, if you're a, a king, especially in that context where you were a true autocrat, in that context, people are always telling you how great you were. Remember what they always used to tell kings? They'd say, oh, king, live forever. Well, if you hear that long enough, you know, you start to believe your own press clippings. You say, this sounds pretty good. Everybody keeps telling me how great I am. I must be pretty great. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, he absolutely thought he was, he was great. He was like Pharaoh centuries earlier who also thought that they were great. And not only were they great, but in time, if people keep telling you how wonderful and benevolent and, and almost divine you are. You start to believe that. You start to think, well, I'm, I'm marked with divinity, steeped in divinity. Nebuchadnezzar certainly thought that. He believed this. On some level, he believed his reign would be perpetual. I don't know how he reconciled losing hair or getting gray or what have you, getting older with all that, but on some level, he and others believed that the good times weren't going to end. They were just going to keep on sailing. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he thought his, his kingdom, and perhaps he himself, all this this golden head, that it would just be the status quo from then on. And to make a point here, his kingdom was pretty amazing. I mean, it's gold. Remember, his kingdom wasn't the silver one or the bronze or the clay. His kingdom really was something else. There's a reason why his kingdom is, is marked as gold, and there's a reason why the prophecy said that the kingdom would follow would be inferior, because it was really hard to top. Babylon in its heyday so to King Nebuchadnezzar the idea that that would end Remember every nation thinks the good times are never going to end King Nebuchadnezzar was especially true to him That made no sense because what he was hearing was not what he heard from every other voice in Babylon To Nebuchadnezzar he thought nothing could ever threaten him or his kingdom and and to prove that he thought this was maybe Nonsense to prove he at least didn't agree with the dream's interpretation Remember what the king's gonna do in the very next chapter? Here in the prophecy, they say that you and your kingdom, you're the the statue's head in gold. Well, guess what he's going to do in the very next chapter that we'll look at next week? He's going to build a statue who most believe is of himself, and the entire statue is going to be made of what? Gold. He heard the prophecy. He didn't believe it. The king's response to the idea that another kingdom is going to come along was to double down on the golden imagery of the original dream. So the king did appreciate that, that Daniel was able to convey the dream and the interpretation. And in the next few verses, we'll see that. He did appreciate that Daniel could do what no one could do. He knew that this was something else. He knew this was special. He appreciated Daniel's interpretation. He even appreciated Daniel's God who conveyed this information. But that didn't mean he agreed to what that God had said. There's a lot of people in his culture and our culture that are glad God's there. They recognize his power. They don't necessarily agree with what he said. Or how things are going to turn out for them, for anybody. And it's one thing to affirm God's power. That's the easy part. One thing to affirm God's existence. That's the easy part. The hard thing is when that God says something that conflicts with your worldview or your view of yourself. And that, that is where Nebuchadnezzar had trouble. He was an autocrat. He believed in his own identity, his own authority. And this vision said that he was to be humble. Over the centuries since, every nation has been humble. Every nation has been humbled over the centuries. Ruler after ruler has gone into the dustbin of history. Meanwhile, the kingdom of the rock has only grown. No one is kowtowing to Babylon anymore, or the Medes, or the Persians, or the Greeks, or the Romans, or what have you. But the kingdom of God remains stronger than ever. The stone truly has crushed all these nations and thrived in the midst of them and permeated the entire globe. It's Jesus Christ who's the focus of Daniel too, not the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans or Nebuchadnezzar himself. It is Christ. It's Jesus Christ, the rock, stone that is cut from the mountain without hand, a stone that shares the same essence and substance as the mountain itself that is the focus of the Passover. Jesus Christ sits on the throne of this world today. Not Nebuchadnezzar. The prophecy held out, held true. By extension, if it was true of Greeks and Romans and Persians and Medes and the like, regardless of the nation, whether it's Persia, whether it's Paraguay, whether it's Rome, whether it's Romania, the day comes when every nation, every uh, knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. That is a parallel to what we're seeing in this vision. That all the nations of the earth, all the kings, all the rulers combined, were they to rise up against this one seated on the throne, it would be, it would be like a gnat banging its head against a world of granite. There's two kingdoms being pitted against each other, one of the world and one of the spirit, one of heaven. And only one of them wins. That was the message to Nebuchadnezzar, a message which unfortunately he would reject. Let's look at our last verses, 46 through 49 In 46 through 49, we're going to see that the king is going to be excited about the interpreter, even if he doesn't agree with the interpretation. 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. And the king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, revealer of secrets, since you could have revealed the secret. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief administrator over all the wise men. That's fascinating of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Alright, as chapter two comes to a close, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego they've all been promoted. The king has recognized what he already knew, but which worn itself out here, the King recognized that these Hebrew men are, are unique and valuable in the midst of all his kingdom. And that's so ironic. Do you remember what happened last week in chapter one? In chapter 1, after the exiles were taken in, Nebuchadnezzar said, all right, take the best and brightest from Jerusalem. We don't need the village idiot. We don't need the buffoons. But give us the best young men. Take them in, and then we'll train them. We'll we'll teach them our literature. We'll teach them our ways. We'll change their names. Change their language. We'll we'll change their diet. We'll change their religion. We'll do all these things to kind of get rid of all the the nonsense, and we'll raise them up as as true Chaldeans. Remember, his idea was that these young men would need to be taught in the ways of of Babylon in, in order to have any value. Well, it's ironic that he had that mindset, because Daniel and his friends, on the basis of their relationship with the one true God of heaven, they had more knowledge and wisdom than all the men of Babylon combined. The ones that they were sent to go to school to learn from, they became the rulers of, the administrators over all these wise men of Babylon. And then these four men ruled the other. This suggests, as a side note, that the first crack was appearing in the head golden head of the statue. Next week, we're going to continue the story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar because their interactions are only going to grow more interesting in the chapters yet to come. Next week, we're going to continue the story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. This is just the first of several times that God is going to simultaneously humble this pagan king and yet validate his prophet, Daniel. But that said, here's a thought for you to consider in preparation for next week. There was a time Perhaps it was long ago for you and I, perhaps it's uh, this morning, but there was a time where if you could have opened up the spiritual door to your heart and looked in, do you know what we would have seen? There was a time in our past for you and I where if we could have opened up the spiritual door to our heart and looked and what would we have seen there on the altar of our own heart, there's a time when we would have seen ourselves sitting on the altar of our own heart, the autocrats of our own future, our own destiny, our own decision. There was a time when this was the case. You don't have to be a king to have a kingly view of yourself. You have to be a king at all to think that it's your will and your ways and your wants and your desires that make the world turn. We're all inclined to do that because that's what sin is. That's what sin does. But if God loves you, He won't leave you in that delusion. If God loves you, He'll humble you. He'll, He'll, He'll remind you that there is a God. You are not Him. If God loves you, he will kick you off the altar of your own heart. He'll remind you that there's a distinction between the creator and the created. If he loves you, he won't let you go on perpetually thinking that you're in charge. It wouldn't be loving for God to enable our delusion or confusion. But what is loving is when he sends Father, when he sends apostles, apostle, when he sends his spirit, when he sends his son to tell us the way the world would really works to tell us truth, to help us understand our purpose and our place. But once he's told you that, once he's told you the way the world really works, what do you do with that knowledge? What did Nebuchadnezzar do? He doubled down, doubled down on his sense of of priority, uniqueness. God has told us, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of us? To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. King Nebuchadnezzar had no problem nodding his head to statements like that. He had no problem giving lip service to the God of Daniel. But what he said with his lips here at the close of chapter 2 did not impact his later choices in chapter 3 and beyond. Walking humbly with God was not on his radar. In his heart of hearts, he was still the king. He was still the king, and he was sovereign in his rule. In his heart of hearts, it was his wants and his desires that mattered most. Is that true of you? Is that true of any of us this morning? It is easy to come in. I'll say this in closing. It is easy to come into a church. And understand this is God's house, but then to go outside these doors and live as if the whole world is our always, the whole world is, is subject to our whims and our will and our desire. It's easy to give lip service to God, say "Holy, holy, holy," and "Great is Thy faithfulness," and all these different things, and to mean it for the moment. But then to live in ways that don't match up with the profession of our lips—is there a disparity in our walk this morning, this day, this week? If there is, we should look at it. We should consider it. We should think. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you that in this text, Father, we see that you have made promises and you keep promises. You have laid out the future. The ancient of days, Father, has decreed to be the end from the beginning. Father, pray that we would understand it. If it was true of Nebuchadnezzar, if it was true of Babylon, it is true of us. Help us, Father, to understand our place in your world, understand our relationship with you, and to live according. Father, it's the name of your Son we pray. Amen. In today's study, we've gone verse-by-verse through Scripture. If this sort of expositional preaching is what you're looking for, then please subscribe to this podcast and check back tomorrow for another verse-by-verse study of God's Word.